Welcome to Redeemer Church. Today we're going to be talking about how disciples obey Jesus. God's calling. <laughs> Hello, Lord. Luke 9:62. Jesus said to him, "No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God." No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day to come before you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to be fed with your bread and wine. We pray, Father, that now you would give us an appetite for the words of God. Some of them are like medicine, are hard to go down. Some of them are a delight to our taste buds. But we are here, Father, to admit that we need them all. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to comprehend. We thank you for this day, and we pray that you are glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week I talked about following Christ. I'm going to follow that up today with a sermon from this verse in Luke 9:62, Because many of us don't think about it this way. Jesus calls us to follow him. And, and what he calls us to do is put our hand to a plow, okay? We're very, very cautious these days about making sure that we understand there is no such thing as works righteousness, so much so that it makes us a little confused because there's no working your way in. But once you're in, there's quite a lot of work to do. Christ calls us to follow him, and what he, follows us, or what he calls us to is a plow. And then what he says in this verse here is don't look back. Follow me, put your hands on this plow, and look forward and go forward. Now, the assumption here is he's telling us not to look backwards because he knows we're going to. Okay, I want to start with that. I've said it last week. The last person in the world who is confused and surprised by your sin is God. Okay? He understands the situation in which you're in. But he's giving you a warning. He's giving all of us a warning. Don't look back. Don't look back. Following Jesus costs us something. His grace isn't free. I've covered this before. Grace is free because it's a gift, but it's a gift that costs God a great deal. Now, the grace of salvation costs Jesus his life. We understand this, right? It's, it's, we don't pay for the gift. It's a gift. But it caught, he had to go out to the store and spend a lot of money on the gift. But there's another way to look at the costly grace that we receive. To accept God's gracious gift of himself costs us something, too. You lose something, by accepting the gift. The key is believing that what you gain is actually greater than what you've lost. When Jesus called Philip and Nathaniel, Peter and Matthew, and the rich young ruler, Jesus told them to abandon everything, to leave it all behind, and to follow him. He told them to leave jobs and homes, traditions, loved ones, riches, families, possessions, and nationalities. All other communities, all other loyalties, and all other ends. He said, leave those and follow me. And Jesus commanded them not to look back. Bonhoeffer said in reference to the rich young ruler, when he was challenged by Jesus to accept a life of voluntary poverty, the rich young man knew he was faced with a very simple alternative of obedience or disobedience. When Levi was called from the receipt of custom and Peter from his nets, there was no doubt that Jesus meant business. Both of them were to leave everything and follow. Again, when Peter was called to walk on the rolling sea, he had to get up and risk his life. 
Only one thing was required in each case, to rely on Christ's word and cling to it as offering greater security than all other securities in the world. His word has to, we have to accept it and receive it as a greater security than all other securities in the world. Okay? Gold is not as secure as the word of God. The stock market is not as secure as the word of God. Okay? Uh, F-16s, it's kind of hard to believe, but even those are not as secure as the word of God. It costs us something to follow Christ. You can't have him and your idols. You can't possess his life and your life. I'm here to apologize. I put my meddling tie on this morning. So this is, going, this is just the beginning. I got my meddling tie on. You can't have his life and yours. You can't have him as Lord and your idols too. When you come to faith, your habits, your hobbies, your affections all have to change. A person can only go in one direction at a time, just like he can only have one master at a time. Which way are we going as a community, as individuals, as families? Pursuing the desires of the flesh or following Christ? Now, we'd all say, of course, I think, following Christ. And I would not disbelieve that. I don't think any of us in this room who know one another would be like, I don't know. Right? We all know this is what we want. This is not what we're, we know this is what we're doing. Okay? I want to get very specific, though. Lives can be compartmentalized. There are areas in which all of us, every single person in this room, is all Christ all the time, and areas where we retain our autonomy. There are areas in our lives where we are not just looking back, but still indulging in worldly passions. We need to realize that even if we're given, given ourselves to following Christ, we still retain areas in which our flesh rules over us. We are crafty and all too clever and we are specialists at bringing some areas of our lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and calling it everything. And I'm an expert in this. I experience his victory in one area, and it's a small area, and I call it everything. I'm like, look, behold, a follower of Christ. But, <laughs> right? Oh, but there's these 500 other areas in which <laughs> the word Christ is never mentioned, but we're not going to go there, right? No, that, that's how we, this is how we all are. Amen, right? I, I'm not for a moment, this is not a sermon about like uh, total depravity where I'm now talking uh, to like the inmates at my work where they're just, they are fully on the road to hell and not looking back, okay? You guys are not that. I understand that. We need to understand that. But there are areas in our lives that Christ has, has had victory and we are experts at calling it everything. Let me tell you a story. This isn't my neighbor in the sense I'm talking about myself. I am actually talking about my neighbor here. Okay, he rinses. <laughs> my wife sees right through this. My neighbor rents his house. The landlords are distant and hardly ever seen. His lease states clearly that he must care for the yard, and it mentions a list of tasks. He has to mow and prune and weed and manicure, sweep the drive, rake the leaves, etc. Now, if you drive by my neighbor's house, you will see a relatively manicured lawn. You'll see trim bushes, everything green, flourishing, and ship-shape. It looks orderly and like, like he cares for it perfectly, right? You drive by that house, you're like, I hope that landlord is paying him because of how well he's taking care of that yard. Now, the backyard, <laughs> the one with the high fence, the one that nobody ever sees, right? The landlord never just comes over and wanders into the backyard. It's a different story. There's a high fence, and the grass is, well, how do I put this? His kids play safari back there, like it's the West African plains, right? 
There are roadies, if you see them literally dying because of the weeds that are choking the life out of them. I've never seen weeds actually choke a plant before, but this is, I'm like, this actually is an example that works. Nothing is green on that rhododendron bush. Okay, the, the beds are overrun with crabgrass. He doesn't spend any time out there. He's busy. It's only his family who has to endure the backyard. Now, if you asked him if he cared, of course he'd say yes, right? But would you believe him? Do you, believe, do, you, do you care about your yard front and back? Are you obedient to your lease? Yeah, he says. And none of us would believe him, right? And I think this story helps us all reflect a little bit on our own lives because, like myself, I wrote the story, but even I have justifications for the poor man, right? He's very, very, very busy. He's got a family. He's got a job. Right now, that reveals a lot about, I think, where we're at. Now, some of you are, see very deep, dark, spiritual problems in the fact that this man doesn't take care of the backyard, right? So this story should be helpful on a lot of levels. This is exactly, though, this story is exactly like what we are all like. We are wonderful at keeping up the portions of our lives that get a lot of traffic. Our spiritual front yards are trim and neat, but our spiritual backyard is a different story. The portion of our lives that live behind a high fence. Now, the rub is we're called to cultivate holiness in our lives front and back, like a rented yard. We have a landlord with a very specific lease agreement. Our lives are not our own, and he requires us to care for it, all of it. But we succumb, don't we, all too easily to laziness, to self-delusion, and to apathy. We don't study Jesus like we should. We don't pursue input about our spiritual life from the brethren or from God himself like we should. We are content to worry about what others see and work hard at cultivating an image of holiness and obedience while calling it everything. We are called to follow Christ. We're called to follow him. And it costs us everything. It's hard, hard work to follow him. And so we have to refresh ourselves constantly. What is God's lease agreement? What is it? Two of our primary tasks are mortifying sin and vivifying virtue, which means we need to put sin to death and enliven virtue. Okay? The Puritans used to talk about this. Um, it was very rare to find anybody who wrote about mortification of sin and vivification of virtue after like 1640. But this is what the Puritans used to call it. The mortification of sin is taking sin in the backyard and shooting it in the head and burying it in a grave in which no one will ever find it. Okay? I hate to be graphic, but this is what we're talking about. Vivifying virtue is doing everything we can to cultivate patience, to cultivate kindness, to cultivate goodness, to cultivate love. Now, when Christ found Pe- oh, I'm sorry, when Christ called Peter to follow him, Peter had to actually leave something behind. There was an actual empty boat. There were unused nets. Okay? There was a business that had nobody leading it. Servants who no longer had a master. He, right? It's not figurative. It's not spiritual in the sense that it doesn't actually touch real things. When Christ calls you to follow him, there are literally things you're leaving behind. Now, this is what I find to be fascinating. Christ dies okay, on the cross, and he's resurrected. And the first time he finds Peter, what is Peter doing? Peter isn't carrying on the work that Jesus spent three years teaching him how to do. He's back fishing again. In John chapter 21, the first time Jesus finds Peter, Peter is back in his old life. 
Christ has gone away for a while. We're not really sure what's going on. The lease agreement was a little fuzzy. And Peter goes right back to fishing. And Jesus has to go get him from his, right, this old life a second time and call him to follow him again. Right? Now, we're not confused about whether Peter's in or out. This is why I, I really want this to be both comforting and difficult to hear. Peter's in, but what does he do? He does what we all do. We go right back to the old thing that we're, we know we're not supposed to, that we were called out of. New Christian or old, we put our hand to the plow and look back, sometimes distracted to the point of leaving the plow completely idle. We taste and see the Lord is good, and yet, like dogs, we all return to the vomit, right? the filth that we thought we'd expelled forever. Somehow, still tastes good to a dog, and doesn't it to us? We got rid of that nasty thing, and we knew it was nasty. It was gross, and we left. And something about it, though, made us want to come back and try it again. To begin, we have to acquaint ourselves with the process of mortification of sin and vivification of virtue. Now, in your bulletins, there's two points. There's really not. There's one. What I discovered doing this, going through this, is there's really these things go together. There's not mortifying sin over here and vivifying virtue over here. There are two things that go together, right? When I weed my, the, the lawn in my front yard, I'm both putting the weeds to death and helping the life of the grass at the same time. Okay, God saved you so that you could be conformed to Christ's image, so you could imitate him and be like him. You need to be conformed to his image in your thoughts and your emotion and your intellect and your behavior in every way possible. See how he lived and live like him. Okay, open the book, open the book. See how he lived, live like that. See what he valued, value those things. See what he hated and hate those things. See how he responded to life's events and respond the same way. This is something I covered last week about studying being students of Jesus. Okay, but, but, but to be honest, okay, this is the thing we all need to sit down on the couch and <laughs> let, let, get out the pad and paper and let's start contemplating our own lives. You're a long, long way from what you're called to be. You think badly, you respond badly, you behave badly. You sin, and not only that, you cultivate sin, Okay? Some of us are going out there and ripping the grass out so that the dandelions can spread. And that's what the reality is in some of our lives. You have liturgies of sin. This is a difficult thing to understand, but I recently read a book called You Are What You Love. And this is very helpful. You do, how do you end up in the dark room all by yourself in front of the computer screen? How do you end up at the, the ladies' study gossiping? Right? You don't just get there in an instant. Right? We have liturgies of sin. You see something... Instead of turning your mind away from it, you kind of meditate on it a little bit. And that leads to a little nibble. That leads to a meal. And then you become a total junkie, right? We have liturgies of sin. And, and th- this is a process that we need to, right? When you go out and do yard work, there's a process to it. Uh, I don't have one. It's kind of funny. My kids are totally confused the way I do yard work because I, I trim here for a while and I mow here for a bit and I weed back. I really don't know what I'm doing is the problem. But most of us, right, if you're going to do it well and do it efficiently, I sure wish I could watch Justin do yard work because I bet that's super efficient. You do it in exactly this order. You keep all the tools in perfect order. Uh, I, went, I was at Peter's one time helping him, and I couldn't believe how he could find everything. <laughs> oh, you just put it right back in the... Anyway. Okay? You have liturgies of virtue. You have liturgies of sin. How does one become more Christ-like? Okay? What is the actual process for this? Very broadly, the Bible says 
lays out two ways that you become like Christ, by stopping something and starting something. I've talked about this before in another sermon. You say no to certain things so that you can say yes to other things. You stop doing these, and so you can start doing these. Mortification is the act of stopping sin. But stopping it, running it over with a car, and then backing up and running over it again. And then, just to be really clear, going out and shooting it a few times. I'm very graphic for a reason. Because what we do too often is maim sin. And it goes off into the bushes, recovers, and comes back. <laughs> right? But stopping sin is stopping it. You stop it from breathing. You stop it from eating. You stop it from growing. Mortification is the act of stopping sin, of putting to death sinful instincts, motivations, and actions. The New Testament stresses that the act of humiliation comes about through the grace of God. It is the result of, not the condition of belief. Okay? Nobody will ever mortify a sin unless they have already received the grace of God. And the, the reason is that's what we're called to do. And he always provides the means to do what he's called us to do. Okay? He calls you to follow him. He says, put your hand to the plow and don't look back. And he's not going to leave you there alone to do that by yourself. We are called to put to death the deeds of the body, not to merely complain about them. This is another big one for the Puritans back in the day. They talk about two kinds of repentance. Sorry. I was recently explaining this to my kids because they will cry when they get caught. And they'll, get, they'll be upset that they sinned. But that doesn't mean they hate it. That doesn't mean they're repenting of it. Right? And too many of us too often feel badly about sin without really attacking it. Okay? Sitting down and crying about it is not the same thing as going about the process of eliminating it completely. Vivification is the quickening or bringing to life of the new nature we have received from God. To vivify something is to enliven it, right? You actually give it food, whereas mortification is taking the food away. You water the grass, you don't water the weeds, right? In our reading this morning, these two tasks of putting off and putting on, starting and stopping, were contrasted very well. In Colossians 3.5, we are commanded to put to death what is earthly in us, followed by a list of worldly affections and actions that we all recognize. Sexual immorality, passion, that's an interesting one. Thought it was, I thought we were supposed to be passionate about things. I encourage you to find out why that word passion is listed there, because it may not mean what you think it means. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. While in Colossians 3.12, we are told to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, patience. Now, We are not merely commanded to kill sin, but also to cultivate holiness by doing the will of God. And because the list includes so many fruit of the Spirit, what does that tell us? The list of things we're supposed to put on are the fruit of the Spirit, which we only get from the Spirit. What does that tell us about the process? Can I just grow out and grow some patience as much as I want? Or am I dependent to grow the patience? I'm not going to become more loving by myself. I have proven that too much. If, if he's commanding us to put on the things that the Spirit provides, it's a clue to us about how we go about putting them on. We need to actively imitate the standard of life given to us by Jesus Christ while ceasing to do the things that he died for. Um, one helpful thing for me in this is I think, I, this is, gets me, when I'm trying to hate the sin, I think this tawdry piece of pathetic whatever I just did is actually the thing that kills God. And if you isolate that from everything else, it was enough. 
And, and when you think about sin, that's a very serious way to think about it. And it's helpful, it's helpful to me to truly hate the thing that I've done. Okay, if you have a rose bush and I weed around the rose bush, then I am both putting the weeds to death and cultivating the life of the rose bush. These two things go hand in hand. If I want a healthy lawn, I have to kill the dandelions as well as nurture and encourage the grass to grow thick and healthy. Right? I love that Scott's stuff they make where it does the two things together. costs a lot less money. You put it on there and it kills all the crab grass and then the grass looks really great. I love it. I wish there was some spiritual thing <laughs> that was that easy. Just here, roll this thing over your lawn in two weeks, bam! Not that easy, though. The Christian life is not merely about fighting sin. It's not about a negative ethic. It's about putting to death sin and cultivating holiness. However, we all know, I don't think I'm saying anything that is new to anyone here. We know this. This is Christianity 101. But we all too often, through neglect, cultivate sin like the disobedient tenant who ignores his need to care for his backyard. You have to go into the yard, folks. You've got to go out there, and you actually have to identify what is a weed and what is not. I've gotten in trouble with this many a times. I was helping take care of a friend's yard, and there was this nasty-looking bush between the cracks. On the, apparently, it took her many years to plant that there. And I ripped it all out, thinking that it was a weed. Right? I had no idea. And this is what we're like. We, uh, I've known people who repent and get rid of like every single CD they own, and then they go and buy them all again. A couple of, they're, it's con, they're confused a little bit. What, right? God is very serious. Cut the hand off that's offending. Gouge out the eye that's offending. So we should be very serious, but we need to be cautious. I don't know how many times I've gone out in the yard and I've taken care of things and my wife's like, that's actually something I don't want there. However, where are my bulbs? Uh, well, I threw them all. <laughs> I dug them all up. I didn't know what they were. They look like funky looking potatoes. I don't know what they are. Okay, and then... The, this is very confusing. I'm telling you, if you have a yard, my yard is so full of stuff, I have no idea what the stuff is half the time. Um, there, yeah, I mean, the stories I could tell about this are endless. But this is our lives, right? We are all too easy to attack something in our life that we think is sin and leaving the thing that actually is there to grow. And so this is study Christ. Put on the mind of God. What are the weeds and what are the virtues what are the things you need to rip out? What are the things you need to, to vivify, to enliven? There are two kinds of life growing in your yard. One needs to die and one needs to live. This is cultivating holiness. Understanding what is out there is very important. The word confession actually means, this is what the word means, say the same thing. So what you're doing, what does God call the thing that you're doing? Right? We're excellent at this, of playing games here. Well, it was a white lie. Right? There's this thing now, it's so confused at work. It's, we call it dissolution of marriage. Sounds very clinical. They're getting a divorce is what they're doing. Okay? We, we're excellent at renaming things, just like Adam was good at naming things. We're good at renaming things so they don't seem as bad as what they really are. Right? How many of you guys, I mean, when you look at your own life, it's difficult to say the thing you're doing. Right? It's difficult to look at my son Titus in the face and say I just lied. Right? Well, son, this is a very grown-up issue. It's very gray. You could go either way. No, son, I lied, and you just caught me in the lie, and so now that's what I have to call it. Um, this is crucial in all of our lives. The modern world, the modern pop psychology, psychoanalysis, 
the feel-goodism that's so popular now is excellent at calling things not what God calls them and making us feel great about it, right? That's a woman. No, that's a guy, right? Think, think about how far we're willing to go with this. Um, we're very confused as modern people. Are they having an affair, right? What does that mean? No, they're committing fornication, right? Let's go all the way with this. And we have to learn this language. It's crucial. What does God call it? What does the Bible say about education? What does the Bible say about anxiety? That's a big one. The Bible has very specific things to say about anxiety, but we ignore that and we go to, you know, the mommy blogger who's written a book about her feelings about anxiety. And, and we, okay, that woman feels sympathy for me. She gets me. God doesn't so much. He's a patriarch who wrote this book thousands of years ago. This is some, a trick that we play on ourselves. And it, what it does is it leads us the wrong way. We're looking back from the plow. We're supposed to go forward as Christ is our example, calling things what he would call them, defining things as he would define them. And what we do is we play games. We believe the world. We don't follow. We take our hand from the plow. We back up. What is the sin in your backyard? For that matter, what is the sin in your front yard? What are the virtues that need some attention? What are the godlike attributes that need some watering, some sunshine? Practice holding your tongue. <laughs> I constantly have to practice this one. I'm going to hold my tongue. That's hard work. That's a lot of difficult plowing. Quick to listen and slow to speak. Right? I'm sorry, these are very specific to myself because I was writing this. Right? Slow down and don't say anything here. You will not only look wiser, you'll be wiser. <laughs> are you sharing prayer requests or are you gossiping? Are you providing for your family or are you a workaholic? What are you neglecting? What are you smothering? What are you ignoring? The rod in a father's hand too often and too angrily can be as damaging as abandoning it altogether. Right? What are you doing? What is going on? When is the last time your spouse and you sat down and had a conversation about the sin that exists there every day? Right? My neighbor never has his wife go out there and be like, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? He avoids that. He's constantly bringing her to the front yard because then she, won't <laughs> she herself won't notice what's going on back there, which is nothing. Okay? When's the last time you had a friend sit down and, and you asked them candidly? I recently experienced this. Somebody came to me and, and had a long conversation with me, and I hated it while it was going on, but it was super helpful, and I trusted the person, and so they could do it, right? This, this is cultivating holiness. Are we, are we uh, just never letting people in the backyard at all? Right? We're avoiding that because when people do, then we'll feel bad about what's back there. Are we talking to one another? Are we asking our spouses? Are we asking our friends? This is important. This is too important not to do. Okay? There's a lot of reasons not to sit down with someone and ask them what they think the sins are in your life. There's a lot of reasons not to do that. Okay? But what you're losing versus what you're gaining in that situation isn't equal. Right? You have to risk. I, t I tell this to my wife. We have to risk hurting one another's feelings to be honest and forthright. It's dangerous and it's difficult. 
right? Dean preached an excellent sermon on what it means to admonish one another. But it's important because we have nasty things growing out there and we're letting them grow because we're lazy and apathetic and don't want to hear it, right? We hate this kind of sermon because the only law that we really, really, really get behind is the one that says, don't judge. I don't know how many Christians say that stupid phrase, and I'll say it. It's a stupid phrase all by itself because it doesn't mean at all what people think it means. Don't judge is a way of a lot of modern Christians. But what I needed recently was my friend to sit down and to do quite a lot of judging by the word of God. Right? It's like a lawnmower going over that grass, making it look nice and smooth. Sweet and I can go out there and putt on that grass now. Now, let me talk for a moment about the spiritual virtue of hate. <laughs> Do you hate what God hates? And this is another one where we get super confused. God is love, I thought. I thought God was love. He just loves. He doesn't hate sin. He doesn't hate sinners. Read Psalms. Read the Old Testament prophets. We have to deal with this fact. He does hate. And he hates a very, in a very loving way. Right? I'm not saying to go out and hate like you would hate. I want you to go and study how he hates and hate like that. All right, let's think about this. Do you hate immodesty in general or only when your daughters do it? Do you hate lying or getting caught in a lie? Do you hate laziness on principle or you just simply hate it when your husband's lazy? Right? Are you lazy? And suddenly you're the lazy warrior when your husband's lazy? We have to go out and, and look in the yard. What's out there? What is it? Right? It's been all too long since somebody's gone out there and took an inventory, measured. This grass is getting long and it's brown. And there's a reason for that. And we need to go and find out. Okay. Don't worry. It's not going to be this intense the whole time. Okay. This is another good one that I, re I recently, this is, was profound. Is your mess bringing down the neighborhood? <laughs> My neighbor put this video on the other day. It was amazing. It's beautiful out. He's got this brand new hammock. He's trying to entice people to come down and hang out with him. You see his feet swaying in it. And in the back, you see this house with the windows open because it's hot. And you can hear the guy screaming obscenities at his wife and his kids, and the tranquility of the scene is gone. Now, that's intense, right? And don't worry, the neighbors have organized a plan as to what to do. But it, that is affecting everybody else. Right, I had this before. that my neighbor was, Another neighbor was selling his house. Everybody was trying to take really good care of their lawn, except me. And so I had a bunch of neighbors come over and help me do it. Because there's one, and they weren't happy about it, I will admit. But one of them even said, you know, you're bringing down the, the value. Of that, that guy's trying to sell his house. You help him out. So, well, that's a pretty good point. And this is what is going on in our front yards. If you're not taking care of them. If you're not taking care of what goes on in your house, right? This is something I had to remind myself all the time. The windows are open in the summer. And all that nonsense that goes on that people don't hear all fall and winter suddenly is broadcast to everybody who, can, who is within earshot. Is your sin affecting the community? Because sin always does. If one of us is chasing clickbait or indulging our fear and vanity with an eating disorder, it is damaging the tranquility and peace of our community. Hey, are you our very own Aiken? And I, I, I'm not upset about this. I don't bring this up because it, I'm personally offended. No, nobody should have to live this way alone. It's the whole point of bringing us into a community like this. 
right? That guy in his house does not have to live his life that way. And there are too many people in the neighborhood who love that guy who want to get involved and help him, right? And, and this is what's going on. Bring it out to the light, as Covey was saying this morning. Living in the light means bringing things out from the darkness of the backyard, from behind the big tall fence. Whew. You do have a good neighborhood. You have great neighbors. Now let me ask you guys. Are you putting sin to death? Sure I am. Are you putting all of it to death though? Are you, do you hate it? Sanctification is this. You were once in your life at war with God and at peace with sin. And God came and made you at peace with him and at war with sin. But it's not a war, is it? Right? It's occasional police action. <laughs> International politics. The occasional police action. We're just going to go in there and do something quick and leave. Right? We should all have a 50-mile-wide front line in which there are lots of tanks and machine guns going after sin as much as we possibly can. It's a war. It's not a police action. The Puritan John Owen wrote, We must be exercising mortification every day and in every duty. Sin will not die unless it is be constantly weakened. Spare it, and it will heal its wounds, and it will recover its strength. We must continually watch against the operations of this principle of sin and our duties and our calling and our conversation in retirement and our straits and our enjoyments and in all that we do. If we neglect on any occasion, we shall suffer by it every mistake. Every neglect is perilous. Every neglect is perilous. Now, we're saved already, so we don't really see it that way, do we? Because we misunderstand the nature of grace and the nature of the calling that we have. But he, Jesus didn't say, here, I have this hackney coach that I'm going to grab on to, and you're going to sit in there, and I'm going to run down the street and carry you. He doesn't say that. He says, put your hands on the plow and don't look back. That's a very different way of looking at the Christian life. We need to identify the sin in our own and one another's lives, and we have to kill it. We have to stop feeding it. We have to stop watering it. We have to stop letting it have space enough to grow. Now, some of us never, some of us were very well acquainted with the world. I was. And I find it's very difficult to kill old friends. Old enemies are easier to kill. But old friends are, are very hard. Now, some of us never were truly in the world. And, you have, and those kinds of Christians have their own problems. right? They have a self-righteous garden that the Pharisees would have been very proud of. Right? They would have been green with envy. Look at that self-righteousness right there. That is something. But every one of us need to get out the weed whacker and check the oil and give the chain a yank. Every one of us. Joel Beagie wrote, The godly farmer who plows his field, who sows his seed, who fertilizes and cultivates, is acutely aware in the final analysis that he is utterly dependent on outside forces for an assured crop. He knows he cannot cause seed to germinate, the rain to fall, or the sun to shine. But he pursues his task with diligence nonetheless, looking to God for blessing and knowing that if he does not fertilize and cultivate, his crop will be meager at best. Psalm 1 Verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Now, a blessed man acts a certain way. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but in the counsel of the righteous. He does not stand with sinners, but stands firm with the holy. He does not sit with scoffers, but sits with Christ at the right hand of the Father. A blessed man finds his joy in the Lord and contemplates God's law day and night. He does all these things and is like one planted, which is passive. Seeds don't plant themselves. A tree is planted by forces working on it from outside itself. So a man careful in how he walks and stands and sits is being planted. There's a weird thing going on here. The blessed man is acting a certain way and is being planted. He's acting and being acted upon. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back. Action. Right? And we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit being worked on. This is the Christian life. A blessed man acts and is acted upon. He is careful with whom he walks and stands and sits, and God plants him by streams of living water. The material we read, the recreation and entertainment we engage in, the music we listen to, the friendships we form. Let me go back to the music for a moment. Because now, for the first time in my life, there are lots of songs I'm learning to hate because my righteous nine-year-old son in the back is like, whoa, dad, did you just hear what that guy said? And you're singing along. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've been singing along since I was 17. What do you want from me? This is Nirvana. <laughs> I think he's wicked, Daddy. Well, you're probably right. Let's just... Right? I, I always wonder when I first became a Christian how Christian parents ended up listening to kids' Christian music all the time. Now I know. Right? It's either that or classical. <laughs> yeah, she's shaking her head. She knows. Right? The things that we decide to put in front of us to meditate on with our minds, all of this matters. This is, why I got, this is the stuff we do not want to hear. This, we do not want to hear this. You do not want me to come over and sit down and look through your Netflix queue. Quite frankly, I'm not really interested in having you come and look at mine. But wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? Right? If, if you went through my Spotify account and looked at what I was listening to, that might be awkward for me. Because I like that, because I get headphones. My kids can't hear it. Let's get that on. Right? Listening to Tupac. Anyway. A blessed man is careful. He's careful about his conversations. He's careful about his friends. We have to all consider Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things. Now, I like what Nate Wilson has to say about this. If you haven't ever seen Notes of a Tilt-A-Whirl, because what I'm not saying is that you just take a cat poster and you slap a verse on there, and that's pretty and fine and safe, and we all, right? That's not the reaction here. But then this reality and this grit that is so common now is also not okay. There are lots of people who need the cat posters. I do. And then there's lots of people who need some of the, the grit. And they need to think about it and engage in it in a Christian way. But the problem is... We just do this stuff. We don't think about it. I, I mean, out of this, I just had a, wife, a conversation with wife yesterday about the things we do and don't do on Sunday, and it, we, had no, we have no idea. We've never thought through that at all. Do we shop? Do we don't? Do we watch football? Do we don't? Is playing hockey okay? Like, throwing the ball? I mean, like, there's all kinds of questions about it. 
right? Should I go and get gas and run errands and do these things on Sunday? I don't know, actually. You know why? Because I've never thought about it. But I know what I'm not doing is looking at what Christ said and did on the Sabbath and then implementing that. I just go about my business and sort of do what other Christians do. We need to think through these things. A blessed man acts and is acted upon. Our sanctification is active and passive. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, we are God's field. We are God's fellow workers, and yet at the same time we're the field. Jesus said he's the vine and we are the branches. Ephesians 3.17 says Christ dwells in our hearts to root and ground us in love. In Galatians 5, it says we bear the fruit of the Spirit. We're the workers, and we're the field. We are acted upon, but God always works through means, through actions, through things, right? Behold, bread and wine. When you were baptized, there was, an, there was actually water there. You get a plow out, and you think, what does this have to do with spirituality? This is a physical thing, but this is what he works through. It's very difficult to push a plow. And in the doing of it, you're transformed. It's through the back-breaking labor of sowing real seeds that God yields 10, 100, 1,000 times the produce. Okay? This is not a spiritual reality that we're talking about. We're, we act and we're acted upon. We're workers and we're the field. It's by the turning of your head from the immodest woman that God turns your heart to your wife. You're doing one, he's doing the other. It's in the sacrifice of hospitality that true encouragement and belonging and generosity are felt. It's the giving away that God ensures you will receive. It's through the actual physical act of giving away that he ensures you will receive. God says take this field and clear it of trees, roots and all. You're farmers now. Clear away the rocks. Turn the earth. Scatter seeds. Remove weeds. Fertilize the soil. We say, but what of the fierce east wind? Will it rain? What are the locusts? What about the sun? What if I don't have enough seed? He calls us to follow him, and instead of an obedient yes, Father, our mouths are filled with questions. The wrong kind of questions. Hopefully you will realize from the rest of the sermon. Romans 8, 31 through 32. If God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also... With him, graciously give us all things. What, what are you worried about? What, do you not want to go take a look at what's growing in the backyard because you're worried about the circumstances of it? Well, what if there's too much out there? I, I'm really stressed out. I just want to veg for a bit. Like, is, is, do I really have sin in my life? Is God really going to provide the means for me to overcome this? I don't want to face it because I don't have the strength to face it. it there it is, the sin, and I'm going to let it be because I don't have what it takes to get rid of it. And these are all the wrong questions. Okay, Job asked questions for 37 chapters, and then God just showed him himself. It's not your questions in one sense don't matter. You need to become acquainted with the one who told you to go and do it. Dependence. He doesn't say go put on the fruit of the Spirit, <laughs> the thing only the Spirit provides, and then leave you to yourself to do it. Right? We couldn't do anything about Satan or sin or his dominion. And he came and he took care of it for us and has now equipped us in every possible way to overcome all of it. 
There's nothing to be anxious about. There's nothing to fear. And, and what, what we do is we hear what he tells us to do, and we're filled with all the how, why, what questions. But that's not what he says. He says, put your hand on the plow and don't look behind you. Right? Don't look back to the life you used to have. Don't worry about those loud footsteps and the growling that you hear chasing you down. Plow. And keep your eyes on me, because I'm the one that makes it rain. And your work will not be in vain. The things that you do will not be in vain. Now, how do we know this? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, it says in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith in virtue and virtue with knowledge, etc., as I read last week. So when God says, take this woman as your wife and lay your life down her, as Christ laid his down for you. When God says, raise these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. When he says, love one another as I have loved you. When he says, be holy as I am holy. When he says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. Make disciples of the nations. Follow me. Your mouth should not be full of questions. He has left you no reason to question. But to do and to believe. This is discipleship. I know, I know. I'm full of so many questions. I want to know. I want to know silly things like how many cheeseburgers did I eat when I was down there. I want to know things like why in that third grade did that kid who I have no idea who he was punch me in the face. I want to know about details. But that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to engage in this world in such a way as that we're transformed by it to be like him and to care about him and to look to him and to worship him and to not be distracted. Don't turn back. Don't look back. Look forward. Where is he taking you? Where is he leading you? Right? What is the work he's given you to do? What's the nastiest thing growing in your yard? He's promised you and he's told you that he, he's with you always to the end of the age. That he has provided you everything for godliness. He says, follow me. God became man God came in the likeness and image of men to, to make us, remake us into the image and likeness of himself. Right? Put your hand on the plow. Don't look back. Don't stand there contemplating like a philosopher. Go into the yard. Look what's there. What is there? What needs more water? What needs more life? What needs to die? This is discipleship, and it's a very serious thing. Okay? He doesn't just, again, he doesn't come and put you in the hackney coach and pick up the things and just run along the street merrily. It's not how it works. And the thing is, in the end, behold the table. Contemplate heaven. Are you gaining more than you're losing? Is your life really better than his? Do you want to cling on to the life that you have in this world, or do you want to lay it down so that you can have his life? The, the problem is we're not well acquainted enough with his life to make this decision appropriately always. But think about it. Think about your own life. Think about who he's shown himself to be. Do you want to look back? Do you want to turn back? Or do you want to continue to follow him all the way? A long obedience in the same direction. Beloved, 
this is what we're called to. When he says, follow me, it's not, it's not a metaphor. It's not trite. And, and he says, put your hand to the plow. And what we need to do is go to him in prayer and in the reading of the word and in fellowship with one another and plow. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Christ who came and did what we could not. And, and I pray, Father, that as we talk about what we ought to do, that it's never separated from the fact that Christ did everything for us, that he is doing everything for us that we cannot do ourselves. We all too often are enticed by the world, enticed by our flesh, enticed by the snares of the devil. And I pray, Father, for each of us, that you would teach us to call sin, sin, and to enliven virtue by praying to you, by reading your word, by acknowledging that you are the Lord of our lives and that you are the lover of our souls and that you have provided all the means to follow you all the way. I pray, Father, that today would be a deep and abiding confidence, that today would be a day of remembering that we are on this path going somewhere specific and we are not alone and that we will reach the end because Jesus Christ is, the, is Lord and he has made a way for us. And we pray, Father, give us the strength to follow. And amen.